If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Thomas Stonewall Jackson. He'll be answering our call on April 24th, 1863. He will die two weeks after this call, but not from a battle. A better nickname for Jackson might have been Wrecking Ball, because he and his men won every battle but one. This powerhouse on the battlefield was also a thinker off the battlefield. He read all the medical journals from the Philadelphia Medical Society, which sounds like some very exciting reading, but... It makes sense, because he would have wanted to be on the cutting edge of caring for his men. He also was a member of the Franklin Literary Society. During these meetings, men would gather to debate both sides of the argument as intellectuals. And to me, this is the key to understanding Stonewall Jackson's resolve on the battlefield. Well, this and his unwavering religious beliefs. See, he didn't just pick up a gun and start shooting people. He knew what he was fighting for, and he was willing to risk it all for his cause. In fact, during this conversation, we hardly talk about battle at all, at least until the very end, because he wants to be very clear why his cause is righteous. A general and an army that believes without hesitation can't be stopped. Jackson will make you question what you thought you knew about Abraham Lincoln, too, and how this war has nothing to do with slavery. He also will take you on a journey as he explains the events that build on one another, eventually leading to the most deadly conflict the U.S. has ever seen. After winning so many battles, it is an unfitting end that he would be unceremoniously and accidentally shot by his own men. But had that not happened, how would the North have dealt with a general that could not be beaten? Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and Sunday school teachers everywhere, I give you Stonewall Jackson. Hello, is that you, Lieutenant General Jackson? Yes, sir. Sir, thank you for speaking with me today. My name is Tony Dean, and I am talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing five feet from one another on a battlefield. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world in my time. Sir, earlier this week, I spoke with General Lee, and he guaranteed me that you would speak candidly with me to ensure that regardless of the outcome of the war, that the truth about your legacy, your courage, and your leadership would be intact. So before I ask any questions, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? Well, first, Mr. Dean, I hope you take no offense. None is intended. But it is only under the direction and under the direct orders of General Lee that I'm presenting myself to you this day. I would normally never share any information of a personal or military nature with anyone. In fact, General Lee has on more than one occasion chastised me severely for not sharing enough information with my subordinates. But I find this secrecy ensures that information does not reach our enemies. I tried to decline this interview. 
But General Lee stated that it was my duty to perform this task, and I have always endeavored to do my duty. I do not know why you wish to speak to me. I consider myself to be a poor public speaker. But for the good of the cause, and with my Heavenly Father's assistance and for his glory, I shall try. General Lee informed me that by my engaging this interview with you, it may clarify more fully our reasoning for being engaged in this second war for our independence. General Lee has also asked that I share some personal history with you to further give you some background to the type of men fighting this cause. Therefore, I will speak briefly with you on my personal history. Even though it pains me to do so, I find it a vulgar practice to speak of oneself publicly, as many politicians and generals do. I do wish to preface my remarks that I am due no fame nor glory. Whatever my brave men have accomplished in these recent months has only been accomplished by the grace of God and for his glory. But since you asked if I have any questions, only two come to mind. One, I'd be very interested if you could provide me any information on the Black Sunday School class that I helped to begin back at my home church in the Lexington Presbyterian Church there. Do you have any news on that for me? That is such a, an extraordinary thing that you did was to go out of your way to try to raise young black people up so that they would have opportunities. I just think that's amazing. And I can tell you that I don't know exactly what happened to the school, but what has happened to the black community over time is that they all have access to education now. And the world in our time has changed quite a bit because people like you were willing to step in and say, wait a minute, these are people, they deserve education like everybody else. I'm curious, what made you decide to go that direction? Why was that important to you? Because you owned slaves, didn't you? Sir, yes, uh, my tax rolls. My servant family was listed as slaves. I think we'll get into that a little bit deeper later. But we have to give credit where credit's due. It wasn't my doing, sir. It was the Lord's doing. All things work for the good in my sovereign Lord's world. A second question that I had was, could you give me any intelligence on Mr. Hooker's intentions over the next few days? I'm hesitant to give you too much information about that, because certainly in our time, we know about the about Hooker, and we know about the battle that you and him will be involved in. And the outcome of that, as well as the direction the world goes afterwards, is the right direction. And I suppose that it is divine intervention, certainly, that it goes that direction. And I would hate to put my hand in the middle of it and give you information that would cause some sort of change in the outcome. Because what happens next is what's supposed to happen next. What can you tell me about Hooker? We've been sitting here all winter across the Rappahannock, uh, facing that overwhelming force that we defeated during the Battle of Fredericksburg. Burnside brought him down, trying again to bring that massive force down to attack Richmond. But Burnside was replaced by General Hooker, and I'm sure that with the nomenclature that the newspaper gives to fighting Joe Hooker, that he's going to be on the move and causes some problems. You know, it is April 24th, and it's 63 here, 
and the war season will soon begin, and any intelligence I could gather would would be helpful. Sir, I did not want to dodge your question about my servant family, but I just think we simply need to lay some groundwork to get a more fuller understanding of my servant family in Lexington. I'm all ears. Please lay that groundwork. Well, sir, my first Virginia ancestors was John and Elizabeth Jackson. They emigrated to the New World as indentured servants. John emigrated from Ireland and Elizabeth from England, but they met on the ship coming over. After serving seven years of indentured servitude, they were married, and they emigrated to Buchanan, Virginia. John and his eldest two sons, George and Edward, would serve in the Revolutionary War. Why were they indentured servants? What was the reason for that? Oh, you're now getting into some personal matters I'll share briefly with you. John was the second son or third son in his family, and under the rights in Ireland at the time, only the firstborn would inherit the property. It is said that John probably stole some money from his brother, and his brother had him arrested. So John sought to try to seek his fortune, I suppose, in, in the New World and sold himself into indentured servitude. The story about my great-grandmother was that her father was a tavern owner, and upon her, his death, her mother remarried. And it said that the stepfather <clears throat> had an eye for her, if you get my drift. And one day she hit him upside the head with a tankard of ale and promptly went down and sold herself into indentured servitude to get away from the situation. At least that's the family information that's been passed down. So that's how they ended up in America. They both were, I guess they were both criminals? Well, they both had the charges against them, yes. Okay, but we're not sure if they were criminals. Okay. Well, again, there's some indication that John probably stole something from his brother. Grandmother Elizabeth was rather a large woman, standing somewhere around six feet. And great-grandfather John was five foot five or six, uh, that would have been a comical pair. But uh, when you hit uh, a man upside the head with a tankard of ale, there's something going to happen, if not charges, at least a split in the family. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Be before we go into too much more detail about your family, because I, your upbringing certainly has had to have a significant impact on the way that you lived your life. I want to clear one thing up, because in our time, there's a lot of people that don't know what your first name is. And the reason that they don't know your first name is because they think that it is Stonewall. And my understanding is that you got that name at the Battle of Manassas, or some people call that Bull Run. I think those are the same place. Can you tell me where this name came from? Yes, sir. The first battle of Manassas, as it would be called here in the South, or the first battle of the run, as it's called the North. And let me digress here for a minute. The reason for so many of our battles of this great and terrible war, having two names, comes from the fact that the military maps that are being used by the North were there at the Department of War in Washington, and they would number or they would named those maps based upon the best water sources for the mules. 
So the North called it the Battle of Bull Run. Well, the South didn't have access to those military maps, and so our map makers had to draw them up, and they simply would title the map based upon the nearest, closest, or largest city on the map. That's how that came about, so many battles being named that way. How that name came about, by the way, was in that first major action there at Manassas. I had been sent down, was then Brigadier General in the 1st Brigade, and had been sent down to that battle to be the lead elements out of General Joseph Hees Johnson's contingent to go down and support General Beauregard. I was held in reserve and was told that morning I got many conflicting orders. First go here, first go there, then go there, then go over here. Finally, last was a move towards the Stone Bridge, and I was supposed to support General Cox at the bridge. But as I approached, the battle was obviously happening over further west. So I put my troops laying down on the reverse slope of Henry House Hill to see the developments. It was obvious that out in front of us down the slope, some three or 400 yards, that our troops were being routed. And a good friend from West Point that I'd also served with in the Mexican War, General B., came riding up to me and said, Sir, we are being routed from the field. And I said, General B., we shall give them the bayonet. Well, General B. rode down to a gap behind the hill where his men were flooding from the field, being pursued by the Union forces, drew his sword and waved above his head and pointed to my men and said, There, look there at Jackson's men, staying like a stone wall. Let us resolve to die here today, and we will be victorious. And we were. But unfortunately, Mr. Dean, that gallant general fell dead on the field of battle that day. And so he's not here to attest that he was not talking about me. He was talking about my men. They are the Stonewall Brigade. I'm just simply Thomas J. Jackson. There's a small group in our time that suggests that B meant that by Stonewall, that you were standing there doing nothing. And it's a really small group, and that is not consistent with all of these other battles you fought and all of them that, that you won. But I think that the consensus is that you were that Stonewall, but you're saying that it, it, it was your men standing there. It was my men, sir. That's what he was referring to. And yes, I understand. I heard those same complaints. They came from some of his disgruntled staff members. After all, when you lose your commanding general that you have been so close to, and General B was a great commander, I understand to a point their disappointment. But understand that I, if I would have rushed my men down that slope and been in the same position with their men, come to their immediate aid down there in the, at the bottom of the slope, I would have been in no better position to aid them than they were themselves. It was by holding that reverse slope, maintaining the high ground, and then at the proper time doing a wheeling movement, running down and crushing them, that we started the stampede that chased them and all the civilians from Washington, D.C. that come out to see this magnificent battle to where they clogged up the stone bridge and became cannon fodder. One of the things that I that has confused me about your history is that it appears 
that you are, sir, a deeply religious man, and I admire that about you. But in war, there's a whole lot of killing and violence that seems to be, it seems to conflict with this deep sense of religion and belief that you have. How do you deal with that? I mean, so much killing and so much death. How do you handle that with your religious beliefs? Does God want all the people in the North to be killed? Well, sir, it is a quandary, I admit. I think a Christian's duty is to act with reverence to the Lord. His duty is to do all he can to bring any war as terrible as this is to a swift conclusion. You know, I would look at God's position in wars. Obviously, if you study God's general Joshua, you will see that God was involved in directing that severe warfare occurred under his rightful judgment. I simply believe it in God's hand because we know our sovereign's Lord's will be done. And I pray to him lightly, daily, continuously. I see that this war is, to me, based upon just principles and that I only look for his guidance, that his will be done and history will simply play out. And you probably stand on the side of history that you know more fully what his will was than I do at this time. Yeah, most definitely. Like I said, things do work out. Let me ask you about your your men. So when you when you and your men are standing there and General B said that you, your men looked like a stone wall, what is it about your men where they are so much, seems like stronger, better trained? I don't know what it is. Because the list of battles that you've won, it is just so, everywhere you go, you win. Like, what is it about your men that is so much better than everyone else? Sir, I learned uh, some lessons in the Mexican War that applied. And those lessons would be this. One, with militia and new recruits or volunteers, you can't be gentle with their training. You've got to drill and drill and drill. One of the most important things that happened early on in this conflict was the dismissal of those self-appointed commanders, be they politicians or others. They didn't have much military training. They were elected to be the captain, so they had to be popular. I'm popular with my men only because they are victorious. So we found out with the raw troops in the Mexican War that training made the difference between those who were successful and those who had failure. Also learned during that war was the idea of flanking movements and swift movements. Many people have studied Napoleon's tactics, and too many of my compatriots simply see mass on mass. Napoleon wasn't simply mass on mass. He was mass on the weakest point. That requires maneuver, and that requires tenacity and swift movement. That's the way my my troops earned during the Valley Campaign, the nomenclature of foot cavalry. So I think that's the best answer I can give you. The What an honor to be called the foot cavalry. Your men could cover a lot of distance in a short time. I mean, that is one thing. It appears that your men would go 
20 miles to one battle, and the next day they'd be 20 miles and they'd be fighting the next battle. It's called March Discipline. My rule with general March Discipline was that you march for 50 minutes, you rest for 10, and you take off again. That gives the men hope that they can keep moving, knowing that oh, if I can just get to that 10-minute break, I can keep moving. It helped cut down on stragglers. Now, of course, in the urgencies of battle, sometimes that was not always possible. But that was my general marching order. That's interesting. 50 and 10, that's super smart. You had mentioned Napoleon, and I know that you'd spent some time overseas. Is Napoleon a hero of yours? Not necessarily. It was simply one of the tactics and warriors that we studied while at West Point. That trip to Europe was more spiritual trip for me. I looked more to exploring the cathedrals. I only went to one battlefield while I was there. That had been Waterloo. So, no, I didn't particularly go there to study military. Again, I was recovering after the death of my first wife and had to take some leave to commune with my Lord and recenter myself, so to speak. When you say you went to Waterloo, did you spend quite a bit of time there? I toured the battlefield. I simply looked around and stood the ground that I had studied about before to get a better understanding of it. Was Napoleon one of the greatest generals? He was certainly efficient. There would be others. You can't beat Joshua in the Bible. But, of course, he had the Lord's favor. Well, obviously, you did, too. The list of battles that you've won, haven't you won all of your battles but one? Well, you're probably referring to Kernstown. Yeah, we've been successful in most of our events. We had a little bit of a letdown during the Seven Days campaign. I know it's been mentioned in papers that I did not uh, quite meet the expectations there, but uh, people have to realize that after the Valley campaign from March 11th to June 9th, we had my foot cavalry had marched over 670 miles in that time. We had fought six major engagements, only losing the one you mentioned at Kernstown. That was based upon being severely outnumbered. At the time, I had about 3,000 troops facing a combined army. If you brought all forces together, 65,000, but probably only 40,000 under banks at Kernstown at that time. It was my mission in the Valley Campaign to keep those 65,000 troops from going down out of the valley and reinforcing McClellan and his siege of Richmond. And so when I got reports that Banks was sending, I believe it was probably General Shields, out of the valley to go down to Richmond, then I had to take action. Colonel Ashby, our cavalry commander at the time, brought back word that these folks was leaving. So we rushed to Kernstown and was not expecting the force that we ran into. I was at first a little upset with Ashby and his false intelligence reporting, but later I found out that he was reporting accurately. It's just that my foot cavalry moved up the pike faster than the shields could leave the valley. And so, unfortunately, General Garnett, who had taken over the Stonewall Brigade because now I was a district commander, started running out of ammunition there at Kernstown and withdrew from his position without orders. When he reported to me, I asked him why he left. He said, well, he's run out of ammunition. I asked him, well, did you run out of bayonets? <laughs> you see, he was holding the center of the line, 
And when he withdrew without coordinating, then that meant people on his left and right had to retire as well. Well, anyway, tactically, we lost that battle. But strategically, it was a victory because we scared Lincoln and Washington into thinking that we might be able to march upon the town of Washington. And Lincoln made it his mission to wipe me out in the valley so he would not release any of those 65,000 soldiers that was to go to McClellan at Richmond. In fact, he tried to trap me in the valley. So Kernstown was the initial fight. We would go down the valley and fight the battle at McDowell, be victorious there. The Shenandoah Valley is unique. You know, people think of the valley. It's actually two valleys. You had the valley, the, the proper valley that lies to the west, split by the Massanutan Mountains. And then you had the eastern valley that's sometimes called the Ray Valley. So when, when we lost at Kernstown, we was chased back down the western side, the main valley. And I was redrew down to Port Republic. And banks continued to come down toward Harrisonburg. And I lived through Brown's Gap to go make it look like I was ordered to go to Richmond. As soon as I got through the gap, I loaded my troops onto a train, and we came back west over to McDowell, which was on the western side of the Allegheny Mountains. We defeated there, and we came back into the main valley and started going back up towards Harrisonburg, where Banks was, to do battle with him. But I pulled him up and I crossed over a pass to those Mount Newsome Mountains that split the Shenandoah Valley. We got over to the Lorraine Valley and I attacked his flank at Front Royal. Well, by that time, he understood that his flank was turned and he started his retreat to Winchester. Well, we came in upon his train, did damage there, chased him back to Winchester, forced him back up towards Harpers Ferry and Charlestown. Well, that's when Lincoln charged Shields that was trying to leave the valley again, and Freeman that was over in the Allegheny Mountains to come in behind me and try to trap us. But we ex we got out of that trap, fled south again, and the culminating battles of the Valley Campaign happened at Cross Keys and Port Republic. Again, we were victorious at both of those. It is absolutely unheard of for any general to win as many times as you have. Uh, George Washington was had the numbers against him in the same way that you did. I mean, a lot of your battles seem like they were two or three to one, very similar to what maybe George Washington would have experienced. And he, I don't know, maybe he won half of his battles and you pretty much won all of them. It's just, it's incredible how far you have come in your life and how much you have done for your cause, considering where you started. And we were talking about that in the beginning, because you were an orphan at a very young age. I mean, you had a lot of tragedy in your early years. If we can, let's go back to what we were talking about when we started. Tell me a little bit about how things started for you. Well, we left off with my grandfather serving the Revolutionary War. When grandfather and Colonel Edward returned from the war, he bought a piece of property that most people now recognize as Jackson's Mills there on the West Fork River in the western part of Virginia, just, just west of the Allegheny Mountains on the plateaus there. Grandfather Edward had two wives there and a total of 13 children. His first wife, Mary Hayden, 
was the mother of my father, the third child. My father was Jonathan Jackson. He was a lawyer. And he married my mother, Miss Julia Beckworth Neal. And they had four children. Elizabeth was the oldest. Warren was second. I was born on January 21st, 1824. And my sister, Laura, would be born two years later. But tragedy would strike our family, our small family there, in the spring of, of 1826. The great many diseases would be going around without much medicine to cure them. And my older sister came down with typhoid fever. Seeing as how my mother was heavy with child with Laura, she was unable to care for Elizabeth, so my father tended to her diligently. Well, Elizabeth would die on March 5th of 1826. My father would contract the same disease and die on March 26th. And my sister Laura would be born on the 27th of March. This left my mother husbandless, homeless, and deeply in debt. You see, as a lawyer, as a prominent lawyer, my father had signed co-signed many loans, and upon his death, creditors came knocking on my mother's door, so she had to sell our home with most of our personal belongings. Luckily, my father had been a founding member of the Masons there in Clarksburg, Virginia, and the Masons rented a small cabin or cottage and provided it to my mother. She would support us by taking in sewing and washing, occasionally teaching school, at the house. She was a good Christian woman. Some four years later, she would marry a, a lawyer several years her senior. His name was Blake Woodson. And it would be at that time that our my siblings and I would start being separated. My elder brother Warren was sent to live with my mother's brother, Alfred Neal, out on Neal's Island in the Ohio River. But Laura and I were only at that time, seven and five. We were down in the Fayette County for two or three months, and Fayette County is in the mountainous part of our state there. When my mother had sent word to my Uncle Cummins back at Jackson's Mill to come down and fetch Law and I, I could not understand why my mother was giving away her children. Now, again, I'm only seven. Yeah. And so on the day that Uncle Cummins comes down to pick us up, I ran out into a large oak tree and hid out the well after night. When I came in, my mother was sobbing in her bed and called me to her bedside and said, Thomas, you must be a good boy. I'm very ill, and the doctor tells me if I'm going to give birth to this baby, I must remain in bed, and therefore I can't take care of you. You must go back with Uncle Cummins. Well, you can imagine my disappointment. I'd only been selfish looking at myself, and I felt that I was being torn away from my mother when I could have given her comfort and possibly aid. Anyhow, Laura and I went back to the mills, stayed for another two or three months, when Uncle Robinson, the kindly old black servant that had helped Uncle Cummins bring us back, said, Children, I'm going to take you back to see your mother. She's given birth to your half-brother, Wirt. Well, we did get back down to what has became to the town of Anstead there. And we did get to visit with my mother for about two or three days before she passed complications from childbirth and, and her tuberculosis. Well, we were taken in to the family back at Jackson's Mills. And at that time, 
the matriarch of the family was my grandmother, Elizabeth, which was my grandfather, Colonel Edward's second wife. Other members at the mills at that time was Aunt Peggy and Uncle Cummings, who ran the businesses there. Uncle Return, Edward, Uncle Andrew. And the extended family was Uncle Robinson, Aunt Celia, Mary, Tamar, Lucy, Samson, Aunt Fanny Ramsey. Oh, it was a lovely life. We were loved, but unfortunately, four years after we became a member of this family, my grandmother Elizabeth was tossed from her horse and died of her injuries. And Laura and I had become very close, being orphans at this time, and our brother Warren living away from us. But by this time, Aunt Peggy had been married and left the farm, and the custom of the time felt it improper for only bachelor uncles to raise two small children. So Laura was sent off to live with her uncle Alfred Neal, where Warren had gone. I was sent over to Uncle Isaac Brake and my Aunt Polly Jackson Brake. But Uncle Isaac and I did not get along. And after being flogged severely one time for not being able to control an angry mule, I decided that I'd walk 22 miles back to Jackson Mills and ask my Uncle Cummins to become his ward. That's what happened. Why he treated me, he stood the place of a father, but he treated me more like a, a younger brother. To tell you the truth, it would be Uncle Robinson and his wife, Aunt Celia, those two black family members. Yes, they were slaves, they were servants but they were family members, really became my substitute parents at this time. So you were more or less raised by your black servants? Yes. I, I looked at them as my mother and father figure. Maybe not at that time. Uh, there was no, no talk of calling them mom or dad. It wasn't that type of relationship. It's in review of my history, looking back, that they really fulfilled that, that role of father and mother after the passing of my grandmother. Uncle Cummins was too busy in dealing with the businesses. I would encourage you, sir, to read Alex de Tocqueville's essays. I don't know. Are you familiar with the gentleman? No. French no. essayist? Alex de Tocqueville is a French essayist that toured the United States in the 1835s. And he wrote essays on many things. But one of, the, one of his essays was on the relationships of blacks in the United States. And he pointed out that blacks were not very well favored in the North, where our relationship with our black population in the South was much more familiar, meaning family-like. Now, I'm not here to tell you that was the case everywhere. You know, we live in an evil world. Just as they are evil slave masters or owners, there's also evil factory shop foreman that mm -hmm. treat their workers with unchristian ways. But in my case, in my dealings with this slave population, it has always been more on a familiar, on a family, more relationship. That's what has happened at, back home at Jackson's Mills and how I feel about my servant family and my own home. I wonder if this is why the that school that you were teaching at, it was so important for you to teach black children so that they you could help bring them up because you were treated well by your black family. 
Is, am I on the right path there? Well, yes, sir. Uh, again, you have to understand that these are children of God. And don't misunderstand me. I have a feeling that you may have a misconception of when we're talking about the Black Sunday School. We're not talking about children, although they were some younger there. Our Black Sunday School were, uh, was an adult Sunday school. Oh, I didn't know that. It was, I went out to the different freedmen and also the plantations and the other old farms around Lexington. And I encouraged those farmers and owners to allow their servants to come to worship service at three o'clock on Sunday afternoons. I would promptly lock the church doors at three o'clock and would not let anybody be admitted afterwards. Now, most people saw that as a sign of my military discipline and strict order, and I let them believe that. But, sir, I was breaking the Virginia law at that time. I was teaching these slaves and servants how to read, which was forbidden after 1831, after the Nat Turner revolt. But, sir, there, well, I'm not a lawbreaker. I intend to abide by all laws as long as they don't conflict with God's law. It was, in my mind, an abominable thing to keep these children of God from reading the Scriptures, because I firmly believe that's how our God communicates with us in these times. And it would be immoral to not allow these citizens to read the Scriptures so they communicate with our great Heavenly Father. I got into an argument with one of the other deacons, or at least another one of the members of the church who was a lawyer. He was about ready to turn me in for this grievous sin of teaching these servants to read. And we got in quite an argument. Well, after I cooled down, I went to go see him at his office and found him at the same time writing me a letter of apology, and we agreed that we would just not speak of it anymore. But that was what was happening there. To further on a little bit on that story, we grew the congregation so much at the black citizens there that the addition was added to the Presbyterian Church. Of course, it was a balcony. And on the day that the balcony was opened up, the black members were expected to seat themselves in that area. When my family came in and sat down in our rented pew, one of the other deacons came up and whispered in my ear, said, Major Jackson, do you not want your servants to sit with the others in the balcony? I said, sir, my family will remain with me. Wow. Well, this raises another question. Obviously, you understand that white or black, that we're all children of God. And you are certainly going out of your way to treat people very decently in a time where a lot of slaves and or servants, whichever you prefer, are not treated very well, often abused. And yet, when the war starts, many people would say that the war was about keeping slavery intact, which means that these people would never have freedom. Is that your interpretation of the war, that the war was about keeping slavery intact? Sir, I am not fighting this war to defend slavery, I can assure you. I cannot deny that slavery is wrapped up in it. But if we're going to get into this discussion, I think we have to have a serious discussion about the issue of states' rights. 
Now, if I get into this, I won't take a few minutes because I have to lay out the groundwork. Are you prepared for that discussion? I am prepared. Please lay that out. Well, the issue of states' rights had its beginning in the colonies when colonists didn't have representation in parliament. And so they began their own self-limited self-government. Of course, the major issue at the time would be taxation without representation. And this is what primarily brought about the revolution. We first tried to cooperate with the idea of the First Continental Congress, but by the end of the Revolutionary War, we brought about separate treaties between England and 13 sovereign states. By that, sir, I mean 13 sovereign independent countries. Now, we developed the Articles of Confederation, that was our second attempt to cooperation of some sort of a national government. But these 13 sovereign states had a fear of giving up enough powers to act for the collective whole. States' rights were to be held transcendent or supreme with no infringements. Well, it didn't work. And so a convention was called to try to modify or improve the Article of Confederation and you'd mentioned Mr. Washington. Well, that great man was convinced to come out of retirement and be the president of that convention. And he swore them to secrecy during the deliberations because all of them realized that the Articles of Confederation just was not going to work. And they developed what became the United States Constitution. Now, its purpose was to mutually agree to extend a very limited number of states' rights to a central government to act on the behalf of the whole, with the states retaining their own sovereignty. They reserved the right to withdraw from this national government at any time that they felt that the national government would start infringing upon the rights of their citizens. The state issue became very evident during the first term of Washington's presidency. There grew a great division between Mr. Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, and Thomas Jefferson, the vice president, and it was over the National Bank. Jefferson made it abundantly clear so that the Constitution did not give the authority to the national government to create such a bank, thus taking the government's money from amongst the states and placing it in the hands of just a very few people. Jefferson said, who controls the purse controls the power. Well, around this argument came the arguments of implied powers and strict interpretation of the Constitution. The Federalists wanted the implied powers, which would assert no more than a continual method to erode the state sovereignty, whereas Jefferson, with his, what had developed then, the Democratic-Republican Party, argued for the strict interpretation that would ensure the state's rights would remain transcendent and supreme. Well, we continued this argument in the Adams administration clearly places an unconstitutional act with the Alien and Sedition Act. First of all on this was they limited free speech against complaining about government laws, obviously a violation of the First Amendment. And they changed the registry from five years to 14 years before an immigrant could become a citizen. Why'd they do this? Because most of the immigrants at this time was flooding into the Jefferson's Democratic-Republican Party. These are obviously unconstitutional acts, but who was to say that they were unconstitutional acts? 
Well, again, we have a disagreement between the Federalists and those who advocated for states' rights. Adams, his government, tried to say it was the Supreme Court's duty to say whether these were constitutional acts or not. Well, Jefferson pointed out that there's nowhere in the Constitution that anybody mentioned anything about the Supreme Court having the right to say what was constitutional or not. They argued that was a state's rights issue, that the state legislatures, in the same way that they had approved the Constitution, should be the ones who would decide whether or not a law passed by this Congress was constitutional. The same way that the Constitution was adopted by three-quarters of the states agreeing to adopt that law. This brought about nullification acts. In fact, Jefferson acting as governor of Virginia at the time wrote the Nullification Act for Virginia to nullify the Alien Sedition Act. Remember, Jefferson was the drafter of the Declaration of Independence, sir. And Madison, commonly known as the father of the Constitution, drafted the Nullification Act that was used in Kentucky. Well, this argument continued to go around. These early arguments made it abundantly clear that the original sovereign states only intended to give up just a very limited number of powers to the national government. These powers were to remain finite and only be expanded by the consensus of the sovereign states. Sir, if we were to sit down here and try to divide up how much power that these sovereign states intended the national government to have, I would say it'd be about 10% to act on behalf of the whole. Well, Mr. Jefferson, when he becomes president, violated his own fiscal conservatism as president. He exceeds his own constitutional authority with the purchase of the Louisiana Purchase. Now, I'm not saying that might not be an overall good thing. I'm just saying he violated his principles. And guess what? New England states threatened to secede because they feared states such as Virginia, who had the original land grant from border from sea to sea would grow to be so large that they would overpower membership in the house and that the new england states would not get a fair shake because they'd be so small but compromise was reached the states gave to congress the right to further develop how these new lands would be developed and hopefully some federal revenue would be raised that way and lessen the tax burden that the states would have to share but the arguments continue, especially in New England, was the War of 1812. New England, again, can contemplate secession over national government, the National Government's Embargo Act, that unduly placed burdens on that region's economies. Other states threatened to secede over Construction Act. This would be the first time that the, that the United States nation was going out and try to draft people into the army. These states continued to think it was their right to determine whether or not things were constitutional. We come now to the taxes of abomination that were passed in 1828. These were high tariff tax that was placed upon the states. An outrageous 62% tax on finished goods was placed upon these taxes of abomination. President Andrew Jackson at the time, no relation. Used the threat of military force to enforce this national tax while he worked with Congress to reduce these taxes. And in 1832, the Tariff Act was passed, which reduced these taxes to a reasonable 20%, and the secession was averted.
So now seven decades of arguing over states' rights. Seven decades uh, of threatening secession over and over. Yeah, and it's not, it was not the South who first proposed secession. And understand, sir, when I was at West Point and we had one class on constitutional law, I believe the author of the book was Dr. Rawls. In no less than three different places, he talked about the rights of states to secede. They simply would have to follow the exact process in each state that they had taken to adopt the Constitution to withdraw from it. So until Lincoln, there was no question about secession being legal. But finally, last, we get down to the slavery issue on states' rights. Slavery cannot be divorced from it. The issues, though, as they progressed through Congress with the passage of the Northwest Ordinance, the Missouri Compromise, the Kansas and Nebraska Act, all served to enlarge the power of the national government and instead of maintaining its limited capacity. The growing powers of the federal government with Lincoln's election became alarming to those who understanding the beliefs that the revolutionary principles were founded in local independent self-government. The last thing a state to pass an nullification act before the Civil War was Wisconsin, and it tried to nullify the fugitive slave law. But with Lincoln's election in 1860, because of the splintered party affiliations, you understand that there were four presidential candidates in contention for 1860. Fact of the matter, I'm going to tell you that Mr. Lincoln's nomination for his own party is very suspect. He's a very shrewd man. You know, he stayed back in, I believe it was Springfield, wouldn't even go to the convention. He just sent his representatives. You know what it's reported that his representatives did in that convention? What? Well, sir, the convention had delegates that were elected by locals to go there. And to get into the convention hall, you issued a ticket because there was a limited number of seats. Well, it's my understanding that Mr. Lincoln's representatives went there, printed a bunch of counterfeit tickets, and packed the hall so that when the other legitimate elected delegates came, they did not have seats. And that's how he gained the nomination. But anyway, he was only a minority regional candidate, and along with his party's position and his northern coalition, to support the Morrell Tariff Act, which was going to replace or return to those taxes of abomination with his party's platform of a strong national bank, internal improvements and high tariffs. Well, these are all arguments that have been argued over before. The new strong national bank would have increased the feral powers with its choosing winners and losers. The internal improvements were certain to favor the North as they had already done. The tariff was to raise the tax rate from that 20% to an outrageous 48%. And I think you'll find there that the southern farmer has already been providing 80% of the federal revenue. And I think you'll further find that those taxes went to the internal improvements in the north in building railroads and canals or direct subsidies to the northern industries. Mr. Dean. Slavery cannot be ignored as one of the issues causing this great and terrible war, but it's only one of a dozen or more issues that have been wrangled over for a decade. And then slavery has only really become part of the issue in the second year of this great war. After a string of Southern victories and Lincoln's fear of losing his upcoming midterm election in Congress, 
that was threatening to limit his war coalition. Up until then, Mr. Lincoln was perfectly willing to make slavery absolutely permanent in the southern states. Take a look at his drafting of what we call the 13th Amendment, which already had been approved by three states, northern states, before the outbreak of the war. He was going to make it a permanent institution in the southern states where slavery existed. Why would he do this? Because he wanted the South to return. The North needed the South's money to further their agenda, their wealth and expansion of power, all funded by the expenses of the Southern farmer. But of course, Mr. Dean, I would expect, since I'm wearing the uniform of the gray, that people might suspect me of being biased. So I want to bring your attention to an outside observer. Are you familiar with a man by the name of Charles Dickens, sir? Yes. England's great man of letters, advocate for the poor. Would you consider him a careful observer of human nature? Yeah, I think so. Well, here's what he had to say about our civil war. He said the love of money is the root of this, as of many other evils. The quarrel between the North and the South, as it stands, is solely a fiscal quarrel. The man that does not see that, the war in America is over money, is a fool. Dickens also wrote, the original Constitution of the Union provided that all taxes shall be uniform throughout the United States. The tariffs turned into a system that compelled the South and paid a heavy fine into the pockets of northern manufacturers. The real reason Mr. Lincoln wanted to reinforce Fort Sumter, Mr. Dean, was enforce his tax on a state that was no longer a part of his union. He forecast his intentions to the governor of South Carolina in the letter, just as a boy puts a bait on his hook, hoping that the fish will bite, and South Carolina did. Lincoln said a letter that they were going to reinforce Fort Sumter, and that's when this war began with the firing upon Fort Sumter. I do believe that was a mistake. I think it would have been better off had South Carolina and those states had not seceded that we fought this out in Congress and come to other compromises as we had before. But if the war wins this war, there will be no more problem with states' rights, Mr. Dean, because there won't be any. There'll be one strong central government controlled by the people who control the money while trying to fool the rest of the people into thinking that their local government has some power. I was still hopeful that we could stay in the Union. You know, there were two votes about secession in Virginia. The first one was not to secede, but it was Mr. Lincoln's unconstitutional acts of war, first by blockading the southern ports, which required, Mr. Dean, a vote of Congress approval. Mr. Lincoln didn't even consult Congress or call them into session before he ordered this blockade. And he followed that up on April 15, 1861, with a call for a national army of 75,000 troops to put down what he called a rebellion. Again, this is an act of war, and clearly in the Constitution, the president cannot declare war. Only Congress can do that. Again, he did not call Congress into session until three months later when the war had already begun. Virginia could no longer sit on the fence as a mediator. And when Governor Lecter got his letter from Mr. Lincoln requiring 2,340 troops being the quota that Virginia was to provide, Governor Lecter sent back a letter told him to go pound salt. 
You know, these aren't the only constitutional violations Mr. Lincoln has committed. And I want to go ahead and share a few more of them with you. Yeah, please do. It is clear that, in your opinion, that this is not about slavery, that there are a whole bunch of violations. While you're giving me these other examples, I am curious, though, because I know Virginia, as you said, they voted first not to secede and then second to secede. Well, you were for keeping the union together and negotiating this in Congress, as you've said. Well, what if Virginia had voted with the union and not to succeed in the second? Would you have been fighting for the union? I don't see how Virginia could have ignored the unconstitutional acts that I have mentioned. It became obvious that the Constitution that we had agreed to had been violated, and therefore our path was clear. But you were you following see, what, Virginia, weren't you? Yes. You see, again, we have to go back to this understanding of the relationship between the national government and those of the state. I believe that people, starting with Lincoln, there came this idea that the national government should be the one that was supreme and transcendent, and the state government being supported. That's not how it's set up. The Constitution was set up to make sure that the state's rights were supreme and transcendent, and only a very limited number of, of powers were given to the national government to act on the behalf of the whole. The national government was to be subservient to the needs of the state governments. Yeah, I see. Not the other way around. So when a state was withdrawn from this voluntary union of states, citizens were no longer under any obligation to the national government. I was only under obligation to the state that I was a citizen of, and that would be Virginia. I see. That's why you go with now, Virginia, if I, that is your state. If, That's if, your country. If, and I, have, I and others would have had the options, and many did this. You know, it's been called a war of brothers against brothers. If I disagreed with so violently with my state that, that I thought that isn't wrong, I had the right to move someplace else. I see that. But speaking of that brothers against brothers, I had read that you and your sister Laura are not on good terms about the war. I've heard some of the similar remarks. I have a few personal feelings about that. I'm sure that she is not passionate as I am towards the politics that I have espoused with you right now. She is married to a good Southern gentleman, Mr. Thomas Arnold. They were married in, in, in 1844 and have had a family there that currently live in Beverly, Virginia. That was the site of some very early battles. The Battle of Rich Mountain took place up there. And one of the people tried to tell me that she was a Union sympathizer because she was giving aid and comfort to wounded soldiers of the Union. I hope that she was just acting as a good Christian woman that I would expect the same thing of my own wife, whether they be wounded Confederate soldiers or wounded Union soldiers. I think it's our Christian duty to, te- to, to treat them equally well. It's our Christian duty to take care of injured and wounded people, no matter what their political philosophy should be. So I can only say that, of course, because we're on different uh, sides of the battle lines now, communications have been difficult with my sister during this time. So it is my hope she's just simply acting in a Christian manner. I will say this, however, being raised out on Neal's Island, you know, that's a section of Western Virginia that uh, has adhered to those northern republican industrial ideas fact of matter one of the 
one of the unconstitutional acts that I'm about ready to tell you that Mr. Lincoln took. The last one I just read last week that he signed into law on April 17th, the creation of a new state of West Virginia. What a sham. Again, if you look at his own constitution, for a state, a new state to be created within the boundaries of an old state, the old state has to give its permission. Sir, I can assure you that Virginia did not give permission for this new state of West Virginia to be established. Basically, it was the delegates to the secession convention from these 16 northwestern Virginia counties that represented the northern industrial Republican interest that went back there to create a state that they could control for themselves. Now, my sister Laura was raised in that area, and therefore, perhaps, we haven't had a chance to discuss this because of the war's intervention, but perhaps she has some political leanings based upon those folks that she'd be intimately familiar with. Interesting. These are the degradations that Lincoln has occurred here in just the last two years that he's been in office. Most egregious, sir. He suspended habeas corpus. Are you familiar with that legal term? Yes, definitely. Well, habeas corpus is a fundamental legal right guaranteed to us, not only in state constitutions, but in the United States Constitution. When I was a constable, when I was 17 years old, before attending West Point, if I came and arrested you, Mr. Dean, on some charge, within 24 to 48 hours, I'd have to produce your body in front of a judge. And I'd have to explain to that judge why I should have you locked up. And if I couldn't sufficiently explain, that judge would free you. You suspend habeas corpus where you can throw somebody in jail and throw away the key. And in fact, that's what Mr. Lincoln has done. Mr. Lincoln has over 800 political prisoners locked up in Fort McHenry, Maryland, and Fort Lafayette, New York. He arrested over one-third of the Maryland state legislatures so that they could not meet and pass an ordinance of secession. These were duly elected representatives, and he had them arrested because he feared what they may come up with in their state legislative meeting. He declared martial law in Maryland in September 1861. So from the South's perspective, Lincoln looks like he is out of control, like he's totally ignoring the Constitution, totally ignoring states' rights, uh, totally ignoring everything. I mean, just doing whatever he wants. Yes, sir. He's becoming a dictator or a monarch with absolute power. He's destroyed over 300 northern presses or put them out of business for disagreeing with his war measures. I have to be honest. It is a little jarring to hear Lincoln being called a dictator or a monarch. Yet, when you hear the other side of the story, it makes you wonder. But even if he was, maybe that is what the U.S. needed to get past that issue of slavery that no one was willing to take seriously. Imagine, if politicians now dealt with big issues like that, they probably wouldn't be assassinated, but they certainly would not get voted back into office. It is a tricky line to walk. In the next episode, Jackson will talk about the bloodiest battle in American history, as well as some of his quirks, like why people say he had a fascination with lemons. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast. 